Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And I also have a blog. I haven't written in that in quite a while, but I think there's some decent stuff from 2019 to 2021. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. And if you'd like to reach out to me, please feel free to do so. You can send me an email at rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right, today is June 20th, 2022, and we are celebrating our new federal holiday, Juneteenth. And if you've been following the podcast, you know that I see the um, athletes' rights movement as really a civil rights movement, and I have emphasized the interests of the African-American male laborers in football, men's basketball, whose talents carry the laboring or in underwriting the entire big-time college sports marketplace. And I think that gets obscured in, in many ways, and the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have been very good at trying to divert attention away from that fundamental reality and to overlay the interest of other special interest groups to prevent an honest appraisal of the truth of this marketplace, and that influences the regulatory model as well. So today, and the reason I wanted to do this episode today, I thought about doing it tomorrow because tomorrow is an important milestone as well. It's a one-year anniversary of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Austin. I'm going to talk about that in this episode. But I wanted to do this episode today in part because we're celebrating Juneteenth, and I think about these issues through a race-based civil rights lens. So I'm not telling anybody how they should or shouldn't think about Juneteenth or about the history of race relations in the United States. But for me, what I'm going to do is pull out some material that I put together just a couple weeks ago. I, I was in Memphis two weeks ago, and I spent the better part of a day at the Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Hotel where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968. And it is, first of all, it's very well done. It's very well constructed and it is powerful. It is the most powerful history lesson that I've ever had. And it really forced me to take a good hard look at the patterns on race in this country and how they repeat themselves and the resistance to treating African-Americans on equal terms, truly equal terms, not just as a matter of law through the stroke of a pen, the passage of a constitutional amendment, but in hearts and minds. So for me today, I've given myself a self-study assignment. I'm going to go back through the notes that I made when I was touring the Civil Rights Museum, and I took a, a lot of photos of the exhibits and the people who were involved in the fight for racial equality. But what I want to do now in this episode is to pick up where I left off in my last episode. And I talked about the Berger case, basically, in the context of Johnson. And Johnson is the case under the Fair Labor Standards Act that's trying to get athletes recognized as employees for purposes 
basis of minimum wage and overtime benefits, and that's all that the FLSA does, and I talked quite a bit about that in the last episode, so you can check that out. But I ended that episode with a discussion of the Seventh Circuit's decision in the Berger case in which the district court and then the Seventh Circuit conferred upon the NCAA and its member institutions an ironclad immunity, judicial immunity, from any liability under the FLSA. And that immunity was predicated upon a 1992 Seventh Circuit decision that applied to prisoners. And the Burger Court analogized the circumstances of athletes to prisoners and created out of whole cloth this absolute immunity, which prevented any fact-finding, any inquiry into the true nature of the relationship between these particular athletes and their institutions. And then there was a case that followed that. I talked about this in the last episode as really a trilogy of cases. And we had the Berger case that was decided in 2016. And I'll just note here too, when you look at the Berger decision and its reliance on this case involving prisoners and its analysis of the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery as a justification for treating prisoners as outside of the FLSA, you might think that this case was from the 1950s. And it wasn't. It was from 2016. And then we had another FLSA case filed in 2017. That was the Livers case. And that one was a little bit different because in the Livers case, the emphasis was on scholarship athletes. And that case wound up being dismissed. And then we had the third case in this trilogy that I'm going to talk about uh, in this episode. And that is the Johnson case that was filed in November of 2019. And the NCAA and a long list of member institutions were sued under the FLSA. And the theory is that these athletes are indeed employees within the meaning of the FLSA. And the the central question that has evolved in this Johnson case is, I guess it's viewed as a question of law, and that is whether the NCAA and the member institutions are entitled to an absolute immunity from any liability under the FLSA because of amateurism. That's what it comes down to. The Berger decision was based on the dicta from Board of Regents and amateurism, amateurism, amateurism. And that was the trump card that they played. And it worked in 2016, but that was before Austin. So what I want to do in this episode is walk through this Johnson case. Livers was important, I think, in a couple of ways that may play out here in this Johnson case. But what I really want to focus on today, in part because tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the Austin decision, is how Austin has been interpreted now a year later and how the NCAA is positioning itself in this Johnson litigation as it relates to the impact of Austin. So really, I think a year out from the Austin decision, We're looking now, we get a peek in this Johnson case into how the NCAA sees Austin. And I find it fascinating and fundamentally inconsistent with some of the propaganda that we've heard for the last year that the NCAA just can't do anything for fear of litigation because of Austin. And they're in this 
regulatory paralysis that can only be resolved by Congress. And the way that the NCAA has pitched Austin in this Johnson case, which is now sitting in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, is, in my judgment, irreconcilably at odds with the public portrayal of the impact of Austin. And I think that's really important here because it goes to the NCAA's true motives. And what's really interesting to me is that in their briefing in the Third Circuit, the NCAA has taken the position that Austin either has zero consequence when it comes to analyzing these FLSA issues, or that it actually supports the NCAA's position for absolute immunity because the unanimous Supreme Court in Austin actually reaffirmed the principle of amateurism and the NCAA's authority to act as the sole regulator in college sports as the protector and guardian of the principle of amateurism. I just, I don't know what to say in response to that. If you believe what the NCAA is arguing in his briefing in Johnson to a federal circuit court, then the Austin decision has no meaning. It has absolutely no meaning. And its rejection of the dicta in Board of Regents, upon which all these immunities are based. It didn't happen. It didn't occur. And if that is what the NCAA truly believes, if that's what they think Austin actually stands for, then there is absolutely no reason why they can't go forward either with the voluntary rulemaking on name, image, and likeness that they promised in 2019 or with enforcement action in this out-of-control name, image, and likeness market and all these collectives and all these issues that were identified by the Division I Board of Directors in that guidance memo that came out last month when they said, this is a problem here and we got to get this under control and we have all these rules regulating booster activity and all these things. If the NCAA truly believes that Austin has done nothing to interfere with its regulatory authority when it comes to its amateurism-based eligibility rules, then why the hell aren't they enforcing them? So what I want to do is walk through the procedural history of this case and talk about some of the important briefing that has occurred and the position that the NCAA has taken here. And then I want to talk a little bit about timing, because I think the timing of this lawsuit is really important when you look at it as compared to the other external regulatory pressures that the NCAA is under right now from these claims and these charges in the National Labor Relations Board that also seek to have athletes recognized as federal employees under the NLRA. And those are misclassification cases. And again, Jennifer Abruzzo, the general counsel for for the NLRB issued a policy memorandum in late September of 2021 saying that athletes are indeed employees and trying to define them as quote-unquote student athletes was a misclassification issue. So we have two actions, two charges pending there. And then we have this house suit. It's in the name, image, and likeness context, but it is going to, I think, put to the test, just as this Johnson case does, what Austin really means and how it's going to influence federal litigation on issues that relate to the NCAA's use of amateurism-based compensation limits. And then, of course, you have the state legislatures as potential regulatory threats, and you have the possibility, two possibilities. One, the revenue sharing initiative, which I talked about in, in the context of this California law, that doesn't seem to have gained much traction. 
Then there are also a few states who are actually looking at passing laws that would say that athletes are employees. So, and then on the flip side of that, as I've discussed in prior episodes, you have a lot of states trying to pass laws that prohibit athletes from being employees. And I've talked about that at the federal level and all these bills, the Rubio bill, the Wicker bill, the Moran bill, which make it impossible for athletes to be deemed employees for purposes of federal law. So, and from a timing standpoint, I think this Johnson case is moving faster than these other external regulatory pathways. And I think that places it at at a level of importance that I think has been understated. Really, the only person who's been talking about this and writing about it uh, is Michael McCann. uh, And I mentioned him in the last episode, and he is a law professor at Franklin Pierce Law School in New Hampshire. And he uh, writes for Sportico. He's their senior legal analyst. And he's been talking about this Johnson case. And he uh, did that interview with Paul McDonald, who is one of the plaintiff's attorneys. And he was involved in all three of these cases in the trilogy, Berger, Livers, and Johnson. And McDonald's had some good stuff to say about what, what he's seeking here and uh, really what this case is all about because the coverage of this suit has been very limited and in the discussions of the case, people haven't really focused on the fact that the NCAA is arguing for an absolute immunity from liability because of this Berger decision. And then they want to avoid at all costs any fact-finding into the true relationship between these athletes and their institutions, wherever that may land. And as I'm going to explain when I talk about the positions that the NCAA has taken, the battle right now isn't really about the a final determination about whether athletes are employees under the FLSA. It's about whether they're even going to have the opportunity to try to prove that up through fact-finding. And again, the NCAA has been so good at setting up these firewalls. They did that with antitrust litigation up until the O'Bannon case. And it wasn't until O'Bannon that a federal court said, wait a minute, we're not going to give you a free pass. You don't get immunity under antitrust laws because of this offhand language about the revered tradition of amateurism and you need ample latitude to regulate. They came out of the Board of Regents decision. We're not going to give that deference to you. So you have to prove in a full fact-based analysis under the rule of reason that your compensation limits are reasonable. You know, that shouldn't be a lot to ask, but that speaks to the power of the NCAA. And one of the messages I think that comes out of the way that the NCAA has built these firewalls in all aspects of its regulatory authority to any external regulatory threat is that they have been immunized from having any inquiry into how they actually do business and what the true relationship is between the laborers and the beneficiaries of that labor. So this isn't some great leap forward. Really, all the athletes are asking here and all they were asking in Austin was to have the NCAA be treated as any other litigant would be treated. And the NCAA has argued that it is literally above the law. It was above the law in these antitrust suits because of this Board of Regents dicta. And In this FLSA case, they're using the same rationale. They're using the same Board of Regents dicta, the same fealty to amateurism, and the same firewall to to any scrutiny. They talked about this dynamic on the backside of Austin after the Supreme Court issued its opinion a year ago. And that is that it was hailed as this huge victory for athletes' rights. And it was in the context of that deference that the NCAA had gotten for nearly 40 years after Board of Regents. But when you look honestly at what that 
case accomplished and what this FLSA case is seeking to to accomplish in Johnson, it is just to bring the NCAA under the very laws that any other person or entity would have to abide by in the United States of America. So it's really just trying to bring the pendulum back into a range of reality. But the pendulum for 40 years had swung so far in the NCAA's favor and all this deference to its principles, amateurism, the student-athlete, the collegiate model, all this garbage, that just clawing the, to get that pendulum back to a center point that applies to everybody else in this country seems like a huge victory. And that just speaks to the power of the NCAA as propagandist, the power of its messaging, and the power of its allies. And I've said this time and time again, these athletes are up against some of the most powerful forces in the history of the United States of America, and they've aggregated their power to shut these athletes down. And what's happening right now in this Johnson case is a good example of that. And so I'm going to be focusing mostly on the NCAA's briefings. I'm going to talk a little bit about what the SEC had to say in its brief and what all this means going forward and what the I think the bigger strategy is here for the NCAA and the Power Five. And again, that gets back into the timing and where this is all going to land and how it relates to the NCAA's congressional campaign. All right, so let's go through this litigation timeline. So the complaint was filed, this Johnson complaint was filed in November of 2019. Then there was an amended complaint, and then the NCAA and the institutions filed their motion to dismiss on the grounds that the amateurism dicta from Board of Regents and this Berger case out of the Seventh Circuit from 2016 gave the NCAA absolute ironclad immunity from any liability under the FLSA. The briefing was complete in May of 2020, and then you had oral argument, and then there was a little bit of a lull, and I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think the, the district court here may have been mindful of Austin, and they were waiting for a decision in Austin. The same thing happened in this House litigation on the West Coast, and the NCAA filed a motion to dismiss that case as well. It's standard operating procedure. And then Judge Wilkin, who has that case, she also had O'Bannon and Austin, she kept her powder dry until the Austin ruling came out. So the Austin ruling comes out on June 21st of 2021, and on that same day, the district court judge in this Johnson case sends out a request for a additional briefing from the parties on the motion to dismiss, asking whether Austin changes the analysis. And then on July 6th of 2021, the parties filed their briefs. It's really interesting when you look at the brief that the NCAA filed on the impact of Austin, it's breathtaking in its denial. So I just want to talk about a couple things that the NCAA says in response to the Austin decision. The first thing that it says is this categorical statement that, quote unquote, Austin has no implications here. It is solely concerned with whether the lower courts properly struck down NCAA rules limiting the education-related benefits schools may offer student-athletes, and they put education-related benefits in italics. So they're saying that Austin doesn't have anything to do with the position that the NCAA is taking in the Johnson case. And they go on to say, Austin does not support the athlete's FLSA claims or undermine in the slightest the continuing viability of either the Seventh Circuit's decision in Berger, and then they reference a Ninth Circuit decision. I'm just going to focus on Berger. And they go on to say, if anything, 
by strongly distinguishing education-related financial support for student-athletes from direct compensation for playing sport, Austin supports the principle that the economic reality of student athletics is and should continue to be that students do not receive unlimited payments unrelated to education akin to salaries even in professional sports leagues. And they cite back to the district court opinion in Austin, not the Supreme Court opinion. But what's interesting about that framing is that it just misses the fundamental purpose of Austin, and that is that the NCAA is not above the law. You don't get antitrust immunity, and you must be held to account and to justify your market practices that impede free markets. You have to justify that under the facts and the evidence through a rule of reason analysis. And so what I think the NCAA did in this briefing, and this carried into its briefing in the Third Circuit when the case makes it to the Third Circuit, I'm going to talk about how that happened procedurally here in a minute, but they confuse a ruling that was expressly limited to education benefits because of the way the issues were framed by the athletes in that case. And they can Confuse that with one that expressly approves the principle of amateurism. And it's so, so important. I talked about this at length in my discussion about the Austin case. The original purpose of that suit was to strike down all compensation limits relating to amateurism. It was going to be a complete takedown of amateurism. But as the case evolved and we had this O'Bannon limitation in the Ninth Circuit and Austin was in the Ninth Circuit, you had this rule of law in the Ninth Circuit in O'Bannon that said that payments that are related to education are okay. Those that are unrelated to education are not okay. And for purely strategic reasons, the athletes chose not to pursue a complete takedown of amateurism, which would have required them to challenge the O'Bannon ruling. And the remedy that was crafted in Austin by the district court and then affirmed by the Ninth Circuit was consistent with this O'Bannon education-on-education distinction. When the athletes appealed to the United States Supreme Court, they chose not to renew their challenge to all of the NCAA's compensation limits. They did not cross appeal. The NCAA appealed that case to try to get its request for judicially created antitrust immunity in front of the United States Supreme Court. And the athletes could have cross appealed and said, wait a minute, we think that all these compensation limits should be struck down, not just those related to education benefits that fit within this O'Bannon model. And they chose not to do that. So the discussion about the framing of the case, which included this education-non-education distinction, had nothing to do with whether amateurism would be defensible if it had been challenged. It was simply the context of the case as presented to the United States Supreme Court. So they could not issue any kind of a ruling that went beyond the four corners of how the issue was framed by the litigants. And so the NCAA in this Johnson briefing, because the Austin case operated in that limitation, they construe that to mean that the United States Supreme Court held that any amateurism-based rules that are not related to education would be permissible and fully enforceable and that the NCAA had the authority to regulate in those areas. The, the Supreme Court didn't say that, and it wasn't called upon to say that. And they were very clear in their opinion that they were limiting their analysis to the way that the case was framed, to this limited injunction out of the district court that held to this education-non-education distinction. And they said that the NCAA's compensation limits on education-related benefits was 
subject to the full rule of reason, and that they agreed that the district court applied the rule of reason the right way and was going to uphold the injunction. That's what Austin said. And the way that the NCAA is pitching Austin now is just disingenuous. It's simply not what the Supreme Court held and not what they were called upon to decide. We don't know what the United States Supreme Court would have done if the athletes had cross-appealed and said, we're going to ask the Supreme Court to strike down all NCAA amateurism rules. We want them to deal a death blow to the principle of amateurism itself in any context. We don't know what the United States Supreme Court would have held, and they weren't called upon to answer that question. But again, if that's what the NCAA believes the United States Supreme Court held in Austin, then why in the world isn't it enforcing its own regulations in this nil market that the NCAA and Power Five have described as out of control and an existential threat to the future of college sports? There should be no reason for the NCAA not to take that action and to take it aggressively if this is the way they interpret the United States Supreme Court's decision in Austin. But then there's another part of this brief that the NCAA files on the impact of the Austin case that is just another classic example of how disingenuous the NCAA is in characterizing what it's actually asking for. In Austin, to this day, the NCAA refuses to acknowledge that it was seeking absolute, outright antitrust immunity. That was the sole reason they appealed, and the U.S. Supreme Court analyzed their appeal on those terms, and they said, you don't get a free pass under antitrust laws because you are the sacred guardian of amateurism. You do not get antitrust immunity and you do not get any watered down standard under the rule of reason analysis. You play by the very same rules as anybody else. No deference at all. Yet in their briefing to the United States Supreme Court and at oral argument, The NCAA's attorney, Seth Waxman, said this at oral argument to the United States Supreme Court, that the NCAA wasn't asking for outright antitrust immunity. All they were asking for was the application of the ordinary rule of reason analysis with a couple of little caveats. And those two caveats were called either the quick look approach to antitrust review under the rule of reason or the deferential abbreviated review. Under those two theories, the NCAA was arguing that they weren't stepping outside of the rule of reason. They were incorporating those principles into the rule of reason. And what it meant, what those two things meant, quick look and abbreviated deferential review, was that a federal court that was looking at a challenge to the NCAA's compensation limits or eligibility rules simply had to look at whether or not they in any way related to the NCAA's protection of its uh, principle of amateurism. And if the answer is yes, then there's no factual inquiry. It's gavel bang next case. That is antitrust immunity. But they tried to couch it in terms of being within the traditional rule of reason analysis. But the Supreme Court saw right through that, and they dispensed with those arguments, but they also addressed the NCAA's arguments in the context of an absolute request for antitrust immunity because the NCAA wasn't engaged in commercial activity and that the NCAA wasn't subject to antitrust laws at all because they weren't the type of entity that antitrust laws envisioned. And that was just a flimsy argument. And the United States Supreme Court just shredded that thing decisively and very efficiently. These arguments that the NCAA has been holding on to for decades, the trump card, the amateurism-based trump card out of the offhand language from Board of Regents, the United States Supreme Court in Austin just sliced and diced that in a few paragraphs. 
But in this Johnson case, the NCAA uses the same strategy with the immunity it got from Berger under the FLSA. And so the NCAA says, the athletes will no doubt point to the Supreme Court's rejection of the argument that the NCAA status as a particular type of venture categorically exempts it from ordinary rule of reason review under antitrust law as having implications for the FLSA as well. But defendants have never argued that their status as schools or as the NCAA calls for any modified application of the FLSA. Rather, they argue that application of the generally applicable economic reality standard leads to the conclusion that student athletes are not ipso facto employees. That is the very same argument that it made about the quick look and the abbreviated deferential review standards in the Austin case, in the antitrust context. So when they invoke the economic reality standard, as I discussed in the last episode, that is the totality of the circumstances analysis, very similar theoretically to the rule of reason analysis in antitrust. You look at all the surrounding circumstances, and it is a fact-based inquiry. It is not amenable to being resolved in a summary fashion because it requires a multi-factor analysis of the totality of those circumstances. So when they invoke the economic reality standard, as meaning that they're not asking for an absolute immunity from the FLSA. They're just looking for the application of the ordinary economic reality standard. That is absolute nonsense. Because when you look at what their interpretation of the application of that standard means, they're talking about Berger. They're talking about this offensive immunity that was created by analogizing the circumstances of college athletes to involuntary servants who are permitted to be treated as involuntary servants if they are prisoners. And the justification for that was an, a loophole to the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. That is what the NCAA means when they say, oh, this is just an ordinary application of the economic reality test. What they don't say there is that interpretation of the economic reality test is one in which you don't do a single bit of fact-finding. You don't find a single fact. You just say, oh, athletes are like prisoners. They have no rights. And it's gavel bang, next case. And the NCAA kept up that facade and its portrayal of what Austin really means through the briefing in the district court and into the Third Circuit brief. And when it was requesting that this question about whether athletes are employees under the FLSA as a matter of law, that's the way they framed the issue, they wanted that issue to go to the Third Circuit immediately through what's called an interlocutory appeal. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. But when they were making the case that the court should just send this single issue, this positive issue, as a matter of law, the fact that they requested that relief is inconsistent with their argument that this is just the ordinary application of this totality of the circumstances, the economic reality circumstances that apply to FLSA cases. But what they say in their briefing on that is, quote, Austin did not undermine in the slightest the continuing viability of the Seventh Circuit's Burger decision. So, so what they're saying there then is that Austin has no meaning and that the Austin court's rejection of the Board of Regents dicta as a trump card 
has no meaning. That's essentially what the NCAA is saying in this Johnson case. And the athletes in that same briefing in Johnson at the district court level point out that if Austin stands for anything, it stands for the fact that there's simply, quote, no reasonable basis to continue to argue that the concept of amateurism can act as a shield against the application of ordinary legal tests. Indeed, the Supreme Court in Austin rejected a perfectly analogous argument made by the NCAA in an effort to avoid the application of an ordinary legal test in a Sherman Act case that dealt with student-athlete compensation. Of course, that's what Austin stands for. And in response to that common-sense reading of Austin, the NCAA makes another dishonest argument, in my judgment. And they respond to the athlete's interpretation of Austin by saying, well, wait a minute, Austin didn't involve the FLSA. Their ruling wasn't a one-size-fits-all ruling. It applied only to antitrust cases. And that's a tempting distinction to draw. But here's the problem with that. The NCAA has used the very same amateurism-based immunity shield, both in Austin and in the FLSA, as a one-size-fits-all immunity shield. They use that amateurism-based immunity in every single context in which an athlete is challenging NCAA compensation limits or eligibility rules. They did it with name, image, and likeness. They did it with cost of attendance. They did it with the FLSA. They did it with transfer rules in this DEPI decision in 2018 in a variety of contexts that don't really have a fact-based connection to each other. The NCAA has used the same one-size-fits-all absolute immunity shield, and that is the dicta from the Board of Regents decision in 1984 about the revered tradition of amateurism and the need for the NCAA to have ample latitude to regulate and act as the sole regulatory authority in college sports. So you can't have it both ways there, NCAA. So you have Austin now on the table and the district court requested briefing. Then after that issue was fully briefed, the district court judge issued its order denying the NCAA's motion to dismiss on the merits. And that was filed on August 25th of 2021. And the district court judge, Judge Padova, he's a senior judge sitting in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, which is where this suit was filed. And again, I mentioned this in the last episode. The Johnson suit was filed outside of the NCAA's home court. The Berger case, the case that the NCAA relies on, was filed in Indianapolis in 2014 and then runs through the Seventh Circuit. The two other cases, Livers and then this Johnson case, were filed in Pennsylvania, in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, and the Third Circuit Court of Appeals covers the state of Pennsylvania. Judge Padova issues his order, and it is really the athlete's arguments right down the line. And the court says, you don't get a free pass because of the Board of Regents dicta. And the court talks about the impact of the Austin ruling and then discusses in some detail the need for the application of the appropriate test. But the most important bottom line to come out of the district court's decision denying the NCAA's motion to dismiss is that you're not above the law. You have to play by the same rules and you're going to have to be subject to whatever the appropriate test may ultimately be in looking at whether or not these athletes are employees under the FLSA. And that initial order only addressed the merits of the FLSA claims and whether these athletes are employees. Then about a month later, on September 22nd, 
of 2021. The district court issued a companion ruling on this joint employer issue. And I talked about this in the last episode as well. The athletes are arguing that the NCAA is acting as a joint employer with the institutions and is responsible under the FLSA as a employer. And in that Berger case, the Seventh Circuit just dismissed that claim outright and said, no, there's no way that the NCAA can be a joint employer. They're one step removed from the institutions and all that stuff. In this Johnson ruling in September 2021, Judge Padova goes the other way and he says, yeah, when you look at the control that the NCAA exerts over these institutions through its Byzantine rules and the enforcement of those rules, it is very clear that the NCAA is calling a lot of the shots here and that they are not acting as a mere regulator. They are acting as an active participant in defining the work circumstances of these athletes and enforcing rules that go directly to their employment relationship. So the NCAA is indeed a joint employer, and that's a big ruling. And I think, and one of the things that I'm going to talk about at some point, I may not talk about this now, I mentioned it in the last episode, was the impact of some of these issues in the FLSA on these actions in the NLRB on the collective bargaining side. And the FLSA has nothing to do with any of those issues and work conditions. But in looking at joint employer, the way that the Third Circuit handles this is going to be important and could have some influence in how that issue is handled under the NLRA and through the NLRB misclassification cases because those misclassification cases include the NCAA and they're making the same joint employer argument there. And that's really important. And as I discussed a little bit in the prior episode, this joint employer issue is important for another reason because it is a way to try to bring public universities who may otherwise be outside the scope of the FLSA or the NLRA under the coverage of those laws. And that's a complicated analysis, but it's really important in expanding the scope of coverage under these federal laws. So you have these two rulings that are really bad for the NCAA. And that joint employer ruling, I think, is really important because it changes the dynamic in terms of framing the NCAA's responsibility. And the NCAA has deep pockets here. So if you're the plaintiff and you're looking at it from the interests of the plaintiffs and the plaintiff's attorneys, having the NCAA on the hook here is a good thing. And the NCAA doesn't want to be on the hook. (laughs) They've been so successful over the decades at building this firewall around the national office and the pile of cash that it hoards every year from the March Madness tournament. This pierces that veil, this joint employer rule ruling as to the NCAA kind of pierces that veil. That poses enormous uh, threat to the NCAA. So the NCAA immediately files this extraordinary request with the district court asking for permission to file an what's called an interlocutory appeal to the Third Circuit on the sole question of whether or not athletes can be deemed employees under the FLSA as a matter of law. That's essentially what the question presented is. And they want a ruling that they 
indeed have the very immunity they claim they're not asking for <laughs> under this Berger decision. And the there's some briefing on that, and the athletes oppose it, of course. They also think that the way that the question was presented was not the way it should have been presented. And the way the question is presented sounds like it gives a little bit of deference to the NCAA. And let me pull that out real quick. So let's see. The question that the NCAA wants the Third Circuit to answer is whether NCAA Division I student-athletes can be employees of the colleges and universities they attend for purposes of the Fair Labor Standards Act solely by virtue of their participation in interscholastic athletics. That's a little leading in my judgment, but it goes to the basic issue, this immunity issue. That's what this question asks. We believe we should be immune from liability under the FLSA. And that's the question that was ultimately approved to go to the Third Circuit. So in late December of 2021, Judge Padova certifies that question, and it is sent to the Third Circuit before there's any further proceedings in the case. And interlocutory appeals are rare, and it's an exception to what's called the final judgment rule. Ordinarily, you can't appeal a case in federal court to the circuit court until there has been a final ruling on all issues in the case, and you have a quote-unquote final judgment. This interlocutory appeal is an exception to that, and it's one that is disfavored. It is an aberration in the process of a federal lawsuit. You have some circuits hostile to these appeals. The Third Circuit has been even-handed. They take about half of the interlocutory appeals that are requested. And there are very few of them. There are very few of them. And I did a little research on the frequency of these appeals and how often they are granted because they're discretionary appeals. And the Federal Judicial Center, which is an organization comprised of federal judges that does research on procedural issues mostly. They did a study between 2013 and 2019 on permissive interlocutory appeals, and there were only about 600, and the acceptance rate was about 50%. And then they also looked, and this is relevant to what's happening right now. I'm going to talk about this in a little more detail towards the end of the episode. But they also looked at how long it took in the average interlocutory appeal in that six-year period to go from the time that it was granted, the time when the circuit court says, yes, we're going to look at this issue through this interlocutory appeal process, to the time that you had a final determination on the appeal and you had some kind of a decision. And it's really interesting because the average length of time is about 16 months. And that's really important here because that takes the Johnson timeline into the spring or early summer of 2023. And I think that is consequential when you can look at it compared to these other pathways that I think may take longer. But I think this Johnson case is moving faster, and I think it falls at an interesting time in how I see the NCAA Power 5's timeline in terms of getting help from Congress. Because remember, if the NCAA gets the things it wants from Congress, absolute antitrust immunity, preemption of all state laws that interfere with NCAA regulatory authority, and importantly in this case, a federal declaration under federal law that athletes cannot be deemed employees for the purposes of federal law, then this Johnson case would be mooted. 
So if the NCAA is able to re-engage in 2023, and I believe that's their timeline, they've been very coy about their timeline, but if you've been paying close attention to the rhetoric that's coming out of the decision makers, whether it's the NCAA, the Power Five, or this transformation committee, the conference commissioners, spokespeople, athletics directors, they are all talking about Congress, 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 and they are talking about the midterm elections here in 2022. And remember, after the election, that new Congress isn't seated until January of 2023. I believe that's the magic timeline from the NCAA and Power Five's standpoint. And they're going to be treading water until then. And you're in this promise and delay phase. And there's been all this talk about what the transformation committee is going to do. And I'm going to be talking about that in an upcoming episode. It's not as much as they want to make it seem. But they, I think, are going to splash around in the water a little bit. They're going to rearrange the furniture a little bit and try to get into the post-midterm period and then into a new Congress. And that's when the rubber's really going to meet the road with the new re-engagement with Congress that I think is going to run more through the Power Five than the NCAA. And I've talked quite Quite a bit about that. But when you look at that timeline and then you look at the average amount of time it takes to get from an interlocutory appeal to an actual decision on the merits in a federal circuit court, you're looking at the NCAA having several months with a new Congress to work on getting some kind of a piece of federal legislation passed that will eliminate some of these external regulatory threats, the very same things they were seeking in 2019 through the NCAA. And that kind of blew up in their faces in the summer of 2021. So I think that timing is really important here. And if this Johnson case stays true to form with these other cases that the Federal Judicial Center looked at in in the six-year window, I think that the NCAA has a chance of getting this Johnson case neutralized before this Third Circuit even issues an opinion. But, you know, that's one of the things we're going to be paying attention to. But you have to think about this through the lens of what the NCAA and Power Five want, and they are managing the clock. They've been managing the clock on these issues since 2019, and they did that in the interplay between what was happening in the Austin appeal and what they were asking for in Congress. They're back in the same boat, I think, with this Johnson case. So you have that question certified to the Third Circuit, and then there was some procedural maneuvering and all the parties had to get on board in the Third Circuit. And now we have the first brief that was filed by the NCAA on May 31st of 2022, three weeks ago. And then we had the SEC with its brief. And I just want to talk about some of the characteristics of the brief that the NCAA filed in, in the Third Circuit. And it is all burger, 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 amateurism, amateurism, amateurism. And the way that they talk about Austin's the same way they talked about it when the district court asked for briefing on it in June of 2021. And it's either it's irrelevant or if it is relevant, it supports our reinvocation of amateurism as an immunity shield to any liability. And it's just breathtaking in its denial. And the other thing I will say, and some of this is informed by my experience as a litigator, and you can get the sense of the tone of briefs and how the lawyers are trying to portray their client. And reading this brief, I just see the same arrogance and defiance in the NCAA and its stubborn insistence on using amateurism as a trump card to the application of laws that apply to every other 
American in this country, and they haven't backed down a bit, and they are just right back in it, and it is, it's painful, honestly, it's painful to read, and you just get the sense that they don't give a damn what the United States Supreme Court has to say, and that is the arrogance, the very arrogance that brought them to the position there in 2020. Two, it's the Mark Emmert view of the world. It is the my way or the highway. And if you don't see it our way, then you are the problem. We're not the problem. You are the problem. So I just want to go in summary fashion, the principal arguments that they lay out. And the first argument is that the district court, Judge Padova in Johnson, disregarded the Seventh Circuit's holding in Berger that student athletes are not employees of the schools they attend and are not covered by the FLSA as a matter of law. And they cite Berger. That is the very first substantive sentence of this entire brief under summary of argument. They are saying that as a matter of law, they can't be touched under the FLSA. And then they try to tie that into this economic reality test. But that flies in direct contravention of what they were saying in their briefing on the certification of the question to the Third Circuit, where they're saying, oh, no, this is just an ordinary application of the economic reality test. No, they come out and say what the truth is here. They believe that they are entitled to absolute ironclad immunity as a matter of of law. Then their second argument is that the court misapplied the proper test. And they say they talk about all these different tests that could be applied and that Judge Padova applied the wrong test. And there was all kinds of discussion about that. And then they say, third, not only did Judge Padova use the wrong test, he misapplied the test. And then fourth, and this is important because the SEC, the Southeastern Conference, who filed a friend of the court brief in the Third Circuit made the same argument. And that is that the district court disregarded the Department of Labor's longstanding interpretive guidance that, quote, interscholastic athletics is not the kind of work contemplated by the FLSA and does not result in an employer-employee relationship between the student and the school. And that is another threshold immunity argument. So there are these guidelines that the Department of Labor has issued, and they do not have the force of law, but the NCAA and the SEC have taken the position that there's a Supreme Court case that says that in certain circumstances, if you meet another test, then this guidance can be dispositive. It can be the final say on whether or not a person has rights under the FLSA. And so they point to some guidance that that dates back for decades. And the most recent one that they use, I think, is from 1993. And they basically say, look, the Department of Labor has said that athletes are not employees under the FLSA. And that is another ironclad slam dunk immunity that we can rely on. And so that's their secondary argument. First, you have this burger case. Then you also have this Department of Labor guidance. And what's interesting about that is that you have a second threshold barrier to even looking at the facts of the case. So the NCAA is throwing up these two roadblocks. But the SEC's brief is really interesting because they don't talk about burger and they stay away from the Seventh Circuit's analysis. I believe that's strategic. I also believe that the NCAA and the Power Five and the SEC are reading from the same page, although there have, there's been some tension there as the Power Five have completed their power grab under the NCAA umbrella for absolute control over the voluntary regulation of college sports. When it comes to their litigation strategy and what they have been asking for in Congress, they are lockstep. So I have no doubt that there was coordination here about how 
the NCAA was going to pitch its arguments and their amateurism burger all the way. The SEC stayed away from that because it has some baggage because of this Van Skyke case and the analogy to involuntary servitude as an exception to the 13th Amendment. So the SEC only cites Berger once, and they are all on this Department of Labor train, and it gets them the same result, and that is an absolute barrier, an immunity shield to any factual inquiry under the FLSA. But it avoids having to adopt, explicitly adopt the reasoning of the Seventh Circuit in Berger and this offensive underlying principle it borrowed from the Van Skyke case. So I thought that was really interesting. And I guess I should reemphasize, I talked about this in the last episode, that in the NCAA's use of this Berger case, there is no reference to the Van Skyke case, the underlying case that provided the analysis that the Burger Court used to create this ironclad immunity out of whole cloth. There is no way in hell that the NCAA in 2022 is going to cite to that Van Skyke case. It has been disappeared and it has been laundered. And I want to wind this down with a couple of other points that I think are important. I think in other episodes, as the briefing plays out in the Third Circuit in this Johnson case, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the potential tension between what's happening in Johnson and what that might mean for the pathways to collective bargaining through the National Labor Relations Act and the National Labor Relations Board. And I think there are some important issues to, to look at there. But I want to talk right now about the interests that are being represented on the athlete side in this case and how that differs from the interests of the laborers who underwrite this entire business model. So the students in the case who are plaintiffs in the Johnson case, you have a female tennis player from Lafayette College. You have a football player from Villanova. And then we have a female swimming and diving athlete at Fordham University. Then we have a baseball player from Fordham. Then we have a female tennis player at Sacred Heart University. Then we have a male soccer player from Cornell. So you have athletes at schools that are simply not in the same marketplace as the FBS athletes in football and men's basketball. And that came up in the Seventh Circuit in this Berger case, and the concurring judge, Hamilton, made the observation that the athletes in this plaintiff class really may not be the athletes that have the best case when it comes to employee status. And we need to be looking at these FBS athletes in football and men's basketball. And I don't think there's any question about that. I think the plaintiff class in that second suit, Livers, was an attempt to move it more towards the revenue-producing end of the spectrum and college sports writ large. But I think in this Johnson suit, you have the plaintiff class that is not in the profile of the revenue-producing athletes. And because there's been no fact-finding, we really don't know the extent to which the interests of these athletes as employees align with the interests of revenue-producing athletes in big-time football and men's basketball as employees. But I think there are some differences here, and maybe there'll be some benefit in that. Who knows how this is going to play out factually? That's another thing. Mr. McDonald, Paul McDonald, in that interview with McCann, he did an interview. And in that interview, he said, 
one of the things that we feel pretty good about is that if we get through this immunity issue and we get to apply one of these tests, whatever the court thinks the appropriate test is, when we get into actual discovery and fact-finding, we're going to be in the driver's seat because the facts aren't going to be good for the NCAA and the member institutions. And that may be true, but you never know. <laughs> when you get into discovery, you never know what's going to happen and how it all plays out and what it looks like uh, on the back side. So it's impossible to predict. But I would just say that as a matter of quote-unquote economic reality that's supposed to be at the center of this analysis, the farther you move away from the big-time football men's basketball players and down the spectrum of college athlete interests, the further away from an, a no-brainer employee relationship you, you may be moving. And again, we'll see what happens. And I hope, I believe that the Third Circuit is going to say, wait a minute, you're not entitled to immunity here. You need to go back to the trial court and have full discovery. And uh, you're going to have to do in this case what you had to do in Austin. And that is prove your case. Prove your case with facts and evidence, not made up out of whole cloth immunities to any scrutiny. And if that happens, we'll see what that looks like factually and what arguments the institutions make. And my guess is going to be the same arguments that you saw in these amici briefs. The SEC filed a brief, but so too did the American Council on Education. And they have like 10 different organizations under their umbrella. And they filed a self-righteous amici brief in Austin. And they said, oh, the sky is going to fall, and if schools have to pay these educational benefits, it's going to cause all kinds of problems. We're going to have to cut scholarships. We're going to have to cut teams, and college sports as we know it will come to a fatal collapse. And of course, that has not happened. They're making the same arguments here, and they are all built around a 1950s Norman Rockwell view of college sports, and it's regressive. Their arguments are regressive not just at the values level, but at the practical level, because they're trying to cement in a state of mind, not a reality of the marketplace, but a state of mind that's drawn from this absurd formulation of amateurism that has been propagandized for the last 70 years. And even after the Austin decision, the NCAA is making that same argument. So are the institutions and these organizations that purport to speak for the institutions. And we don't know. Maybe the institutions don't agree with all that stuff. Who knows? We'll see if there are more friend of the court briefs that are filed in this case, but the American Council on Education has arrogated to itself the voice of all these institutions. And I think it's fraught with some of the same limitations that you saw in the early criticisms of big-time college football and the Carnegie Foundation and the Carnegie Report in 1929. And you had people like Henry Pritchett and Abraham Flexner, these academic elitists, pointing to some theoretical academic ideal, this pure academic ideal that was being thwarted by big-time college sports, and that if we only got rid of big-time college sports or brought them into alignment with this ideal, then everything would be fine. And I've argued all along, that's a fantasy. And that ideal that Flexner and Pritchett were pointing to, particularly Flexner, and he didn't participate in the Carnegie Report, but he was good friends with Pritchett, and he made some comments in some of his writings that were hostile to big-time college sports. But he was pointing to the British and the German model. 
model. So what are we talking about here? What is the ideal? And these people are speaking at an uh, ideals level and a, an aspirational level. And they're essentially blaming the greedy athletes for sullying the academic mission and the academic purity of higher education. And that's just a silly argument, I think. But that's the way that a lot of in-system stakeholder beneficiaries see the world. And that's how they view college sports. Now, this is in the context of mostly non-revenue sports at lower level division one institutions. And they may feel less hostile towards those athletes. I think that's true. But I think their arguments are also aligned with the NCAA and the SEC. And you, you have to ask yourself, what the hell is the SEC doing? <laughs> Looking at the plaintiff class in Johnson, what's the SEC's beef? And obviously they're going to defend to the death this employee, no employee line. And I'm, I've been saying that for a long time. That's the hill that they're going to defend, the hill they're going to die on. And they're jumping in here to to start scaring people. This is about scaring people. And you get them scared, and then you get them where you want them, and you get what you want from important decision makers. So we'll see what happens. And I'll be talking a little bit more about this case as the briefing plays out. And then we'll take a look at the oral argument. And we'll keep an eye on the timeline. And I think that's really important here because I think the NCAA and the Power Five are really looking to early 2023 to make their big move in Congress. And that could precede a decision in Johnson. All right. So I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 